You're listening to the Jilted Indian Podcast, a show that examines the immigrant and first-gen South Asian American experience through politics, history, and pop culture. Join our hosts as they explore all the ways they don't fit in, reclaim their connections to their Indian heritage, and eventually say, fuck it, we're starting a feminist commune. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome back, Jilted Indian Podcast listeners. This is Miranda, Pooja, and Anju, and we come with love and courage to present our annual Indigenous People's Day episode. Yay! Yay! Huzzah! (laughs) Okay, forgive us for not being like a little more exuberant. Um, We forgot how to podcast. We forgot how to podcast. Um, Several things, several things to say. It took us almost three hours to set up our audio. I have such sweaty boobs. I am not comfortable. It's summertime in Texas. It's hot as fuck outside. Uh, Normally, we would take so much care to turn the AC off, turn up any background noise, but screw that shit. It's hot. Yeah. So enjoy the in the back if you can even hear it. Um, That's for those of our listeners who are cranking it. They just really want to hear what we have. Wait, how are you using the term cranking? I okay, no, no, okay, Anju, you. Remember when we tried to record a season during a still ongoing pandemic? I do remember that, yes. The optimist in me would say the season was half full, but the optimist in me is in a coma. Oh, no. Like, I'm like, I think that's a perfect metaphor for what we're about to talk about today. Yes, we're talking about comas. No, I'm kidding. Mm, 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 mm. (laughs) Today, on our annual Indigenous Peoples Day episode... Um, colonial and imperial powers all over the world, but in 2021, we had to bear witness to the horror that was Canada and the United States's, you know, dirty secrets coming to bear. So we t- previously talked about these goals, where Indigenous and Native children, First Nation children, were kidnapped from their families and tribes and sent hundreds of miles away into these schools where, th- where they were you know, kept there against their will, beaten if they were speaking their tribal or native languages, forced assimilation. Now, some stats. So the cultural genocide that has been happening to these native communities stemmed from the Manifest Destiny Principle, where the people who were colonizing Canada and and America went through and claimed lands that were not theirs to build, you know, the future of those countries. So That, I want you to keep that in mind as I read these things to you. In May 2021, the remains of 215 children, including some as young as three, were found at the Kamloops Indian Reservation in British Columbia. In June 2021, 600 bodies were discovered at the Maraval Indian Residential School, which operated from 1899 to Uh, Excuse me? Yes, to 1997, where the Cowas First Nation is now located. It is 85 miles west of the capital of Saskatchewan. In June 2021, the Lower Kootenai Band um, used ground-penetrating radar mapping to locate what are believed to be the remains of 128 Indigenous children between the ages of 7 and 15 at St. Eugene's Mission School near 
Cranbrook, British Columbia. Now, the residential school system in Canada served as a mandatory served as mandatory boarding schools for Indigenous youth and were run by churches and the federal government for more than 150 years. During the 19th and 20th centuries, there were about 130 of them across Canada. So as part of, we talked about, um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of 2016 previously. So a part of that, there was a commission formed, and it was officially acknowledged by the Canadian government that 150,000 students were forcibly sent to these schools and that 6,000 of them never came home. The numbers I read to you at the top of this equal about a thousand. Yeah. They found a thousand children. So since the news has broken, the Canadian government, um, specifically the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, provided an additional 83 million Canadian dollars, that's about 66 million US dollars, to help communities find unmarked graves. Now, the thing I wanted to point out is that, and Andrea will get to that in you know her section coming up next, is that it is on the onus of these tribes to find their lost kin, right? It's not something the government is proactively doing. It is we have technology now that makes this quicker for us to do. And so with this technology, they're able to go to these schools where they know their children were taken and never sent home, and they're finding the bodies. So it's something that I don't know where to go from here, um, but that's the stage set when we talk about the constant attack on Native and Indigenous communities, this is one of them. We came into, and I'm using the, you know, the we for the non-Natives, we came in and, um, and took over their country and stole their children and killed you know, a large percentage of them, causing such irreparable generational trauma. Like what, what are the great-grandchildren supposed to do with their you know, seven-year-old uncle? that they never saw. How do you process that? How do you process that? Okay. Hmm. Don't know. Yeah. Can't so, imagine. Unclench your jaw, drop your shoulders, hmm. take a deep breath. I'm just going to drive you through hell. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in the wake of those discoveries in Canada, on June 22nd, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who, as we know, was the first Native American to serve in a U.S. cabinet, announced a plan to investigate the U.S. government's past oversight of Native American boarding schools. So that's going to include compiling and reviewing the records to identify the sites of the past boarding schools, locate known and possible burial grounds at or near those schools, and also uncovering the names and tribal affiliations of the students. Now, it's been just over two months. Obviously, there isn't a lot to report as far as actual, like, results yet. We do know that there are going to be a lot of obstacles in their way. Barely a third of the government's records for Indian boarding schools in the U.S. have even been located. Many documents were intentionally destroyed over the decades of the government's attempts to cover up what they'd done. Um, The existing documents have been scattered among different university archives and historical collections, so it's a lot of, like, manual labor to have to, like, go put their hands on all of it and get it all together. So it's going to take a long time for them to work on all of this. The other issue also is that even if they, when they do finally get all this information together and they're able to identify all these bodies and and find the graves, there is no law that has a protection for unmarked graves and there's no mechanism to force private landowners and like the Catholic Church, which still owns a lot of the, the lands that these schools are on, to cooperate with efforts to repatriate those remains. So there's a lot of obstacles that we haven't really figured out the solutions to yet. 
the one example that we do have is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The former Carlisle Indian Industrial School was the very first off-reservation boarding school. It was the first of its kind in, in America. It was opened in 1879 and ran until 1918, and it housed Native students from across the country. It was actually founded by this Army lieutenant colonel who had been a jailer of Native men who he then converted like 12 of them apparently to be Christians and then went and got those guys to go find students to send to the school. He developed the philosophy in Indian education, which is best summed up by the phrase, which is often attributed to him, which is kill the Indian, save the man. So you said, he said, kill the Indian, save the man. That's what he said? Yep. That phrase is attributed to him. I, uh... What a poet. What a poet. What a poet this man is for the cause of genocide. What, you know, one of genocide's greatest laureates that man was. What an asshole. The marketing. The copy. I I just, this is something I feel like we're going to see a lot of um, (laughs) in these stories of the, I'm just going to say the word oppressors going forward, the oppressors coming in and telling people that the country they have invaded, the land they are about to steal belongs to stupid people. And it hurt. It's we're saving them from themselves. Yeah. Like we've, we were in our discussions prior to this record, we were talking about, wow, what a marketing campaign, what a manipulative, evil, genocidal, sociopathic, psychopathic, marketing campaign that is and um i'm sure you'll hear listeners throughout this episode delusional statements by so-called christians about indigenous peoples and their capacity to raise children it's funny you say that um pratt was influenced by his puritan beliefs um so the whole thing was spawned by his efforts to convert these kids or first the the adults in his prison and then the kids from there the school was run based on the military discipline that he had used previously so it was older kids policing the younger kids 8000 students attended the school and nearly 200 were buried there and sometimes parents would learn of their child's death after they were already buried and which was often attributed to disease obviously although abuse was rampant um at these schools that school obviously closed in 1918. It is now a barracks for the U.S. Army. So it's actually owned by the U.S. government now. And in 2016, a member of the Northern Arapaho um, tribe requested that they start repatriating the remains of the children. And so the U.S. Army started doing that, started working with the tribes to identify these kids and get them repatriated. So they do this once a year. They took a break last year because of covid the most recent one happened in July, where 10 kids, nine of whom were members of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe of South Dakota, were returned to their people. Five of them were among the first students who were ever brought to the school. I just want to interject real quick that it took six years for the Lakota tribe to lobby to get those children returned to them. Six years from, tw- so they started in 2015. Another theme that we're going to talk about today. So th- this year in July, um, Secretary Holland, whose great-grandfather was sent to Carlisle, spoke at the ceremony at the barracks um, when those remains were repatriated, and a caravan of, of Rosebud Sioux youth traveled back to South Dakota with the children's remains, uh, making several stops for prayer services. So at least it started somewhere. Um, there, There is a process for that in place. We can hope that that they will continue to do the work under the Interior Department's investigation to find the rest of these schools and the rest of these burial grounds and and continue that process for all those other kids that are still out there. It's incredible how insidious and subversive this 
centuries-long effort has been. And it's even more incredible, given what you just said, Anju, the strength and resilience of Native people, the strength of their community. Absolutely. It speaks to what is foundational in their community. Like, what the fuck is foundational for white people? Murder, theft, exploitation. While white people fight with that foundation, it speaks to what's ahead. Andrew and I talk about the physical kidnapping of children under the auspices of assimilating them into the American way. And you're about to drop some knowledge on us about the way the judicial system continues to conspire to kidnap Native children from their families and communities. Right now we're listening to This Land Season 2. We mentioned that amazing podcast hosted by Rebecca Nagel last season, but there's a next, you know, there's a new season right now. And um, it's relevant again. It's talking about a court case that is in the Supreme Court, just waiting in the Supreme Court right now. And um, a description for you. ALM, uh, as referred in court documents, is a Navajo and Cherokee toddler. When he was a baby, a white couple from the suburbs of Dallas wanted to adopt him, but a federal law said they couldn't. The Burkins, this couple, the Burkins case would have been a normal adoption dispute. But then one of the most powerful corporate law firms in the United States took it on, which is really fucking weird, and helped the couple launch a federal lawsuit. And, uh, you know, we could tell you more there, but it unfortunately also involves our stupid fucking Attorney General Ken Paxton. Um, For those of you who are in Texas and who also hate Ken Paxton almost as much as we do. So that's, you know, this is already strange. Today, this lawsuit doesn't just impact the future of one child. You know, we're talking about the removal of children or even the future of one law. It threatens the entire legal structure defending Native American rights. The second season of this land is an expose about how the far right is using Native children to quietly dismantle American Indian tribes and advance a conservative agenda. These events are tied. There are parallels between the efforts to steal them from their families, steal them from the tribes, send them to so-called residential schools, and let's just call them what they are, genocide schools. There's a tie between that. That's one leg of it. Then using the removal of Native children and the supposed case of inaccess to Native children's adoption to dismantle Native rights. Like one of the things that I heard in one of the first podcast episodes is how Native children are sought more than other children, especially more than white children. Why is that? Why is that? Because of ICWA. So what that act does, there's some steps you have to go through before you can adopt a Native child. So they include things like the next of kin gets preference yes. outside of the next of kin. It's, you know, any family member outside of the family member, you are supposed to inform the tribe or the family informs the tribe. The tribe finds somebody within the tribe. And if not, then they ask out to the larger community. Anybody, you know, want to, you know, ready to adopt a kid, you know, this type of stuff to keep those familial bonds because like we said north america committed genocide against these people so the continuation 
of their heritage and culture is of importance. And there are studies that show, you know, you're not supposed to take foster kids out of their homes. You're supposed to That keep they them. do better yes. with family. Yes. These are things that are meant to keep Native and Indigenous children with Native and Indigenous people. So to be clear, right-wing Christians were using these schools to kidnap kids in order to undermine Native American tribes and sort of destroy them. The tribes eventually, after a long process, were able to get some legal protections. And now right-wing Christians are again trying to undermine those legal protections to do exactly the same thing? Correct. Because if you kill the children, you kill the tribe. Yes. And this particular legislation that was brought about in the Carter era, like they're trying to dismantle that. And that is the one thing that's protecting these native children. They're crying racism, basically like you're racist against white people. And that's just a generalization I'm making. Um, But basically this begs the question, why, why does the far right want to kill off native tribes, capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy. And the answer is all of the above. So we just mentioned only two legs of a multi-pronged attack on Native peoples. That began in the 1600s. Centuries long. Centuries long. And again, remember how I was talking about the resilience of Native peoples, what's foundational to this, like to these tribes, what they value, what they keep, what they fight to keep because of what was whole and pure already exist you know this wholeness and this purity that was already a part of their culture part of their tribes they continue to fight with that as a foundation but the people who are fighting them they only know murder they only know stealing they only know you know exploitation and that is the fight that is all they know show me a european centric culture that is not based in that somebody crickets It's manifest destiny. It is my need to spread and propagate my Protestant-leaning values and Catholic-leaning values, your Judeo-Christian values, onto you to better you. Manifest destiny doesn't take the other part of that equation into consideration. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's never the oppressed's destiny. And I can't remember like what, whether we decided to say this, but we might as well because we're right here and we're feeling mad. Christianity also plays into that marketing strategy. So you have the people who know what they're doing, who know that they're being evil, and who know that they want to continue in the tradition of murder, exploitation, stealing. And then what they do is they use all the people who don't know any better to say we're doing this in the name of our, let's call it our version of Christianity, because... The Christ- stories of Christianity don't even support this. It's it's an exploitation. It's a it's a uh, what is the word? It is a co-opting of Christianity to achieve a white supremacist end. So when you try to bring these things up to people who don't know any better, they say, "But Christianity, but our God, but our Jesus, right? This is this is downright fucking evil, and it's been going on for centuries." So where do we leave this conversation? We are now aware of, you know. Missing and dead children. Yes. And we are aware that there are people still alive who are not, you know, that old who can tell us about their experiences at these boarding schools since they continued into the 20th century. Hmm. And so, I, and we now know about 
the institutionalized theft and workarounds the federal legislation that has been enacted um what, what, what do we do like what do we do with this knowledge mm, yeah it's important that we stay tuned to indigenous voices talking about this genocide how are we following indigenous people now that's a question we have to constantly ask ourselves what are we doing now to educate ourselves and to support indigenous communities obviously Keep doing everything we've mentioned before. You know, we're going to do our best to do that. And, you know, follow and signal boost Indigenous voices. Consider donating to the tribes. Buy from Indigenous-owned businesses. Stay updated on Indigenous news, especially regarding, you know, the conservation of these tribal nations and their environments. All of that said, what have we learned since the last Indigenous Peoples Day? Pooja. I, honest to God... I have no idea where to start. I wanted to learn more about Land Back, the Land Back movement, and I wanted to learn about it from the Hawaiian perspective. And what I learned has made me question whether or not this country has the capacity to change. So I know that sounds dire and bleak, but let me take you down the road with me because it is dire and bleak. So, (laughs) (sighs) all right. Unclench my jaw, drop my shoulders, take a deep breath, take a giant sip of what is not making me sober, and here we go. So in 300, around 300 to 800 BCE, before the Common Era, it is estimated that that's when the ancient Polynesians first started taking that 2,400-mile canoe trip between the Oceanic Islands to Hawaii, okay? So that's how long... Hawaii's been on the map. In fact, Japan has had, you know, mapped maps of Hawaii and maps as old as the 1600s, right? So guess who actually discovered Hawaii, though? Guess who did it? (laughs) It was James Cook, a British European guy. Discovered. Who discovered it in 1778. And you know what he called it? He called it the Sandwich Islands, as if it didn't have a name. He named it after that fool, the Earl of Sandwich. Literally. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not kidding you. It was called the Sandwich Islands. Damn the stupidity. So I'm just going to run through some very important dates before I get to what I want to talk about in land back. So in 1810, King Kamehameha I unified the islands under a single governance structure previously. Different tribes, different islands, different subgroups like that. In 1820, 1820, a group of Protestant missionaries from Boston boarded a boat called uh from the sorry bunch of missionaries from boston boarded a boat and got to hawaii and started the the conversion from ancient hawaiian religious practices to christianity one thing they did do because hawaii never had one thing they did do because hawaiian was never a written language they because they needed to translate the bible to do their Protestantizing found a way to get the Hawaiian language written down. So then they converted the Bibles, and then they converted the people. And then they told them they were trash. And then they started having children of their own. And then those children wanted a piece of the action. And those children started the pineapple and sugar plantations. Now, we all know Dole Pineapple. Dole was started by James Dole, who is the first cousin once removed or some shit, from Sanford Dole who was part of the coup that took over Hawaii. So in 1883, 
the all-white Hawaiian League was formed. Remember that group of missionaries' children? Uh, These is them. In 1887, on July 6th, King David Kalakaua signed the Bayonet Constitution. Why is it called the Bayonet Constitution? God damn it. Was it done at the tip of a bayonet? Yes. Guess which group formed in 1883 was holding that bayonet? Yeah, 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 you guys. It gets worse. This constitution undermined King Kalakaua. It takes away the native Hawaiian land rights and gives it to these foreign plantation owners. It does things like divert water from homes to the plantations for the sugarcane and the pineapples. And it gives the vote to foreign landowners and takes it away from women. Okay? In Hawaiian society, women have the vote. Oh, that's very reminiscent of the Taino that when dipshit got lost and fucked a manatee thinking it was a mermaid. Yeah, yeah. We're it was about, a matriarchal society. We're talking about Chris. We're talking about Chris there. Mm. I hope you guys have been following along. <laughs> <laughs> In 1893, on January 17th, the coup that officially overthrew the Hawaiian mar- monarchy and Queen Lilio Kalani and set up the provisional government also stopped Hawaiians from voting. Because if Hawaiians were to vote about the government being overthrown, they'd probably say no. In 1894, Hawaii was officially annexed as a territory. And right here, I want to pause and say, from the 1870s to the 1890s, America was ramping up for the Spanish-American War. That's around the time Guantanamo, Pearl Harbor, and Puerto Rico were also annexed as U.S. territories. So... I just wanted to give a shout-out to American imperialism, alive and kicking. You know, after the Civil War, went out there and just started colonizing and and putting their foot in people's asses. So, Mm. in 1920, the Hawaii Homes Commission Act, a.k.a. the Hawaii Homestead Act, was passed. So, I want to say that (laughs) during this time, during that coup, Grover Cleveland, who was president at the time, sent somebody down to Hawaii and was just like, can you confirm that what they did was legal? And that person came back and said what they did was not legal. And what did Grover Cleveland did? Nothing. And then McKinley comes into office and he sends somebody down there because, you know, Grover Cleveland was not of the same party from him. And that person who was a capitalist comes back and says, well, it was completely legal. So what does McKinley do? Nothing. So... (laughs) (laughs) This becomes important in about four minutes when I get through this really long list. Sorry. Mm. (laughs) So, okay. So the Hawaii Homestead Act basically said that if you are a Native Hawaiian defined as being 50% of Native Hawaiian, at least, you get a 99-year lease for land for a dollar a year. In 1990, that was increased to 199 years. But here's the thing. There have been 2,000 people on this list, this wait list, since 1920 who have died without getting their lease. Because why? Because the way that the lobby and real estate lobbies and developers and the plantation owners and things um, did this was the land that was set aside was remote, didn't have water, you could barely dig on it, things like that. So you had to build a whole infrastructure there. They wanted these subdivisions, and in order to say, yes, you will get this lease, this law has now been interpreted to say, well, you have to prove you can put a house on here. And it costs, on average, $100,000, just that's the base, the base um, price, to 
get a plot of land in Hawaii ready for a house to be put on it, a structure to be put on it. That's digging sewer lines. That's wiring a, to the, an electricity grid. The, the, those are those things, right? So $100,000, that's not materials. That's not brick. That's not wood. That's not steel, which, by the way, all have to be imported, okay? And the other thing I want to say is that the plantation owners started lobbying for statehood because they didn't want to pay export and import taxes because Hawaii was a kingdom and an independent country. And if, they became, if it became part of America, then they wouldn't have to pay those taxes. So around the time they overthrew Queen Liliuokalani, she wrote a book called My Hawaii, and it's a compilation of her letters and thoughts and things like that. And there's a line in there that struck me that made me stop reading and cackle like a maniac for a good five minutes because she says, our island didn't have hotels. And so foreign dignitaries would have to stay in ministers' houses or chiefs' houses, you know, or, and just think of what you know about Hawaii now. Mm. It's nothing but hotels. Yeah. Right? So in 1959, Hawaii becomes the 50th state. In 1993, on November 23rd, the apology resolution was passed by Congress. I'm going to read to you the last sentence of the joint resolution of this document. Whereas it is proper and timely for the Congress on the occasion of the impending 100th anniversary of the event to acknowledge the historic significance of the illegal overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, to express its deep regret to the Native Hawaiian people, and to support the reconciliation efforts with the State of Hawaii and the United Church of Christ with Native Hawaiians. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Senate, blah, 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 blah. So we issued an official apology for overthrowing an independent nation. It said, boopity boop, you've been a state now for 50 years. So, okay, a couple things. And I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm sorry, this is just so maddening. When this happened, within 150 years of missionaries arriving in Hawaii to the 1970s, the Hawaiian language almost went extinct. Mm. If it wasn't for... Mm a college professor and, you know, making it his life's mission to go and record native speakers and teach these college, his students who then went on to found um, a school system where everything is taught in native Hawaiian, the language would be dead today. What caused it to become nearly extinct, Pooja? The same thing that happened to the native children in the assimilation schools. We have, you know, elders talking about they had to stop speaking native Hawaiian because they would get beaten for not speaking English in school. So because of that happening to them and their parents too, they stopped speaking Hawaiian at home and started speaking English. So the language had to be rebuilt. And like we were saying earlier, the way to destroy a culture is through its children. The way to rebuild a culture, it's through its children. So that professor and his students started the Kamehameha School you know, it's the 20th graduating class graduated in like 2017 or something like that. So those kids are all learning from preschool age through high school. Every person on campus speaks Hawaiian from the groundskeepers to the administrative staff to the teachers. Hmm. English is their second language and English is offered as a second language in that school system. So that's one thing. The other thing is... Um, like we talked about last year with the Sundance and Sitakalasa, when the uh, when the Europeans and Americans were there, they banned the hula as a 
you know, indigenous practice. And for the same reasons, they banned the dancing of native tribes on the mainland, Mm -hmm. right? Right. It's don't express your religion and faith. You're going to express ours now. So there's that. The other thing I wanted to say, the native population of Hawaii was estimated to be 683,000 in 1778, and it was reduced to 24,000 by 1920. Mm. 90% of the population was gone in 200 years, in about 200 years. So a lot of things happened in the 1970s as a result of the 1960 civil rights movement, like the return to hula, the return to surfing as a culture, the return to canoeing. The story about how the native Hawaii, how Hawaiian people found out, you know, retraced how the ancient Polynesians got to Hawaii via things like the Marshall Island stick maps, via, you know, navigating by the stars, the waves and the sun. It is fascinating. And it's not something we learn in school at all. No. Yeah. So my last thing about Hawaii. So I talked about that Homestead Act. In 1995, um, Congress was like, wait a minute. Oh, this program is not being administered how we need it to. Let's give another 200 acres to this program, right? In 1998, there were six separate laws passed at the lobbying and behest of corporations and developers that circumvented the protections of these carve-outs in the land for Native Hawaiian people and gave it to corporations. And we all know Oprah has a compound there in a private road she doesn't let anybody use. And we all know that Mark Zuckerberg recently purchased 13 acres of land in Hawaii. For what? For what? Are you going to build affordable housing for the Native Hawaiians, Mark? Because that's the only thing you should be doing with that. That is the only thing. Because groups need a million dollars to build 10 houses. And if that money doesn't come, that's 10 houses. 2,000 people died without getting a lease There's a story I listened to in preparation for this of a woman and her mother who was 76 years old who were told, you have the lease, you can't provide, you know, you don't make enough money to get a mortgage, to get your property. And they were homeless, living on the beach in a tent in Hawaii. Her mother is 76 years old. She has been on the waiting list, the woman, for 30 years. Meanwhile... Mark Zuckerberg has 13 acres. How many people have come and gone and taken advantage of U.S. travel to Hawaii without knowing any of this. You know what I mean? Just like, I don't think, I think my earliest recollection of Hawaii, it, any story on Hawaii was Pearl Harbor, right? Nationalism. And then um, how like, it didn't even occur, you know, it's kind of like the Pilgrim story. It's like, oh, these people lived peacefully together. So like, no, nobody questions the stories behind that, you know, when that's the bullshit being taught to us in elementary school. And then what have we seen representation wise? You know, we've only seen films starring white people in Hawaii, love stories with white people in Hawaii. I don't recall any indigenous people indigenous stories other than maybe the closest thing we have is moana and that's not even hawaii yeah i don't i don't know polynesian culture yeah i i I don't know you know what what to say about this and you were talking about looking at what deb hadlin is doing in her position she has since she's since been in in since she has been in the position she found another 80 acres to give to the homestead program right but i also need to see her fixing the homestead program like it shouldn't be this hard 76 year old women should not be living on a beach 
no. in a tent no. for years. It took her daughter, while her daughter continued working throughout the whole time, it took her years to find an apartment. Years. So, okay. We're, we're, we're talking about, let's put those together. How willing do you think Americans are going to be to give up space in Hawaii? Well, speaking of space in Hawaii and the land back movement, the astronomy observation telescope that wants to be put on, you know, sacred land, the people had to protest during COVID. Yeah. You know, they had to stare down, children and parents had to stare down their parents or kids on the police force when they came to arrest them for standing here. We'll link this podcast um, about this movement in, in our show notes, just hearing it from a person, an organizer who was there, it will um, send shivers down your spine, thinking about how sacred this is and how we're just looking for the highest point on Earth to put something to look up at the stars, right? And, and, and I heard or I read that the, other, the place that they're looking to put it now, another China is looking to put their own observatory in Nepal, so, you know, Native people everywhere are screwed. Sorry, Andrew, you had a point. Oh, I just want to say also um, on the topic of natives, Native Hawaiians and the restrictions, they've also been begging people to stop going to Hawaii right now in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. And particularly during a drought where water is being cut off for the Native Hawaiians so that the, you know, the resorts can continue to water their lawn for tourists coming in. <sighs> And not only that, people are showing up there with a fake vaccine card. Like, there is a homeless population, a population traumatized. You know, there, there are, like, you know, unfortunately, in all oppressed people, you know, rampant addiction happening as well. So there's, there's all these... Generational trauma. There are all these signs of generational trauma, and we compound it by um, not listening Entitlement, sociopathy. I, I, and I don't, I, I will put more information in the show notes about this. I was just so angry reading this that I didn't really get a chance. I know I like to, uh, you know, put things where we can act on them. So stay tuned for that. We'll put that on the social media about how you can learn more about the Hawaii land back movement. But like, you know, like I said, it was a systematic genocide of these people based on a pattern of behavior we have talked about time and time again. Time and time again, we've seen it for the need to assimilate to a Christian faith, even though America was founded explicitly not to be a Christian state. And we see the need for money to be extracted from the spaces we enter, no matter what that means. Drill for oil, mine for diamonds build a hotel for other people to come suck on Mai Tais and eat poi and watch Native people dance for them. Murder, exploitation, and theft. That's their foundation. That was very educational to me. And how mindful. I've never been to Hawaii, but I am not inclined to go. I'm extra not inclined to go now. I, I, I'm trying to find the ethical way to visit countries decimate where their only thing is tourism. If it, if, if it was owned by the Hawaiians and they received all of the revenue 
from my visiting them. If it benefited them, I would go, but it does not. It benefits the colonizers and therefore I do not feel compelled to visit. That's why I said I'm looking for an ethical way Mm -hmm. to do this. Right. Anju, what have you learned recently? So maybe we should take a breath because we've gone through two difficult segments. (laughs) This one's not going to be a whole lot better. (laughs) True. All right. uh, Last week, Brazil's Supreme Court started hearing arguments in a case that will decide the future of indigenous protections in their country. After two weeks of delay, the the court case was supposed to have started two weeks prior, and protests by 6,000 indigenous people from 176 tribes. There's a movement from the government and from agribusiness called the time frame limit. But this case centers around a a specific reservation on the, in the southern state of Santa Catarina, where the state government is trying to remove the native tribe, the Joklang, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, from their traditional lands. And the uh, the tribe countersued, and that's how this ended up back in the Supreme Court. But basically, the Brazilian constitution guarantees protections for indigenous people. What this movement is trying to do is trying to narrow the definition of that to say that it should only apply to indigenous people who inhabited their land at the time that the constitution was enacted on October 5th, 1988. Is that a grandfather clause I'm hearing? Basically, yes. Wow. So for this particular tribe, they had been removed from their land like 100 years prior for, you know, white European settlers to take over. So obviously they weren't inhabiting their lands. And they're obviously not the only ones. The indigenous rights activists are saying that they had been pushed off their land for hundreds of years prior. So that is an arbitrary rule. The constitution itself does not actually have a timeline. It it, it says that the rights of indigenous people to, quote, the lands they traditionally occupy, end quote, should be preserved. There's no mention of a time limit or a cutoff date. So this is an entirely arbitrary date that they've decided to choose. And what's particularly interesting about that is that there was a military dictatorship in Brazil just prior to this, from 1964 to 1985, that actively pushed indigenous people off of their land in order to develop the Amazon rainforest. So two years later, this constitution is passed and people are like, but they weren't there. So they don't get to have the protections of it after they were forcibly removed. So the Supreme Court has said that their ruling will apply to all similar cases. Brazil is home to 900,000 indigenous people and their reservation covers about 13% of its territory, which sounds like a decent amount. Those are just the reserves that have been federally recognized and, like, demarcated. There are 237 cases of indigenous lands for a demarcation by the federal government that are still pending review that have been pending for decades. And all of them will now be subject to the precedent set by the ruling in this court case. Just like the military dictatorship wanted to do, Bolsonaro wants to remove these indigenous people and their protections in order to develop that Amazon rainforest. He's made racist, anti-Indigenous statements since he was a member of Congress long before he ran for president. During his presidential campaign, he, he vowed that he would not demarcate, quote, one centimeter, end quote, of Indigenous land. And he hasn't. He hasn't approved any demarcation since he took office. He's effectively suspended demarcation of 27 territories. And he's also weakened federal agencies tasked with protecting forests and Indigenous lands. And one of his legislative priorities is opening up those Indigenous lands to mining, logging, and other industrial activity. So like this is something he is actively pushing the government to do. And on top of that, Congress is actively working on a bill to enshrine this time frame argument into law right now. So the government is actually arguing that the Supreme Court should delay their ruling and let that law be passed and take effect. 
And that law has other problematic provisions on top of that would also would allow the government to eliminate reserves that already exist if they decide that they are no longer, quote unquote, essential to the livelihood and cultural survival of the indigenous people. So the government decides it can just like revoke these protections at any time, essentially. There are, I think, 86 uncontacted indigenous tribes that have chosen isolation. This law would allow the government to contact them if they wanted to, to provide medical aid, but also to, quote, mediate action in the public interest, end quote. And these tribes are isolated for a reason, to preserve their culture. It's like that, I don't know if you guys remember that story about the Andaman Islands in India, like last year. Yes. The homie threw a spear at the drone. Yes. So it's the same situation here in Brazil. And so contacting them would be destructive to their existence. And yet this bill would allow the government to do that. Oh, it would also allow the government to do all kinds of things on indigenous lands without having to actually consult indigenous Mm. owners, Mm. basically. So they could build military bases. They could explore energy resources. They could expand roads. They can just go in and do all of this construction on the indigenous land without having to even consult them about it. So in, in short, it basically would undermine indigenous people's sovereignty and their own territory, even when protected by the Constitution. And deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon has surged since Bolsonaro took office in 2019. In the 12 months from August 2019 to July 20th, about 3,364 square miles of forest cover were destroyed. I think you guys probably remember when we had this huge outcry about the Amazon forest being on fire. Oh, yeah. That shit's still happening. Mm. That's about the size of Puerto Rico. Like a segment of the Amazon forest about the size of Puerto Rico has already been destroyed just in the span of a year. And so the demarcation and protection of indigenous territories, it's not just about protecting indigenous rights, which is also obviously hugely important, but it's also a cornerstone of successful conservation efforts in Brazil. Studies have shown that indigenous peoples are just better and more effective at being able to conserve the environment and slow deforestation. Also a theme, like we've mentioned, this is another prong, this is another leg of that attack. How many stories have we read about native conservationists replanting groves, restocking water areas based on indigenous practices of how to heal the land? It's part of their foundation, as we mentioned. Taking care of the earth is part of their foundation. Taking care of Mother Earth that gives to them, they give to the earth. And that's their foundation. The people who are trying to destroy that, that's not their foundation. And to that end, in learning about the ancient Hawaiians and their religion, you know, food was divine. Food was an extension of the divine, of God. And so when people who didn't understand those practices came in, they made fun of them for worshiping the taro plant and things like that. And so they shamed them out of their cultural practices to join an assimilated one for their betterment because they're stupid. Yes. The people who fuck manatees are, are the better ones. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anju. <laughs> I have nothing to say in <laughs> conclusion after and fuck all manatees. all these people are so <laughs> stupid. We fuck manatees because we're smart, right? Uh, yeah. And we're saying that because this is a confession that... Chris wrote himself in his own journals and diaries that that him and his crew mistook mammalian manatees. You know, they don't have legs or a neck for human (laughs) beings and laid with them. When 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 you open a a manatee's mouth, it doesn't smell human. And yet and yet. And then he had the audacity and like 
similar journals to talk about how how unwomanly because the women were strong because it was a matriarchal society it's tying to women to have the audacity to say that they're not women you're fucking manatees chris but the women of the Taino are the ones who aren't, right? Well, technically, he raped the manatees, so... Um, well, that's also part of his foundation. America, America, this is you. I thought you were going to go, America, fuck manatees. <laughs> <laughs> no, every time something horrible happens, I love to sing the refrain from the old America's Funny Some Videos theme song. America, America, this is you. Yeah. Yeah. America fuck manatees is Team America. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. That's the way I'm going to sing it from now on. (laughs) I'm going to... Okay, okay. I needed a laugh. That was all very, very sad. But, um, yeah. Like, that's maddening to me. That's... ugh, ugh. But, yes, the theme of environment. Anju, thank you for letting us interject. No problem. Miranda, what what did you learn? Well, I was going to say on the topic of the environment, um, right now at the time of record, uh, there is a protest of the completion of line three. If you follow any of the squad um, right now in Minnesota, um, there is this particular protest. And now what is line three? Line three is a proposed pipeline expansion to bring nearly... A million barrels of tar sands per day from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin. It was proposed in 2014 by Enbridge, a Canadian pipeline company responsible for the largest inland oil spill in the United States. Enbridge seeks to build a new pipeline corridor through untouched wetlands and the treaty territory of the Anishinaabe peoples. Forgive me if I said that wrong through the Mississippi River headwaters to the shore of Lake Superior. Line 3 would violate the treaty rights of Anishinaabe peoples and nations in its path. Wild rice is a centerpiece of Anishinaabe culture. It grows in numerous watersheds. Line 3 seeks to cross its well-past-time to end the legacy of theft from and destruction of indigenous peoples and territories. So this is like another attack on the livelihoods of indigenous people, their water sources, on their environment, which is to say our environment. And line three would contribute to more climate change than Minnesota's entire economy. Minnesota's own Department of Commerce found their local market does not need line three oil. So, so this is another example of protections being in place and people just fucking ignoring them? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Like, we, this is not the first pipeline we've heard of there being protests for and there being a threat to the water sources of indigenous peoples. And this is, we're talking about uh, several tribes. And in the show notes, we'll um, hook you up with stopline3.org. You can look at these maps on this website and it is nuts how many territories this pipeline would cross. And for a dying source of energy, instead of investing less money in renewable resources, this is what we're doing. Why? I just think it's interesting that these pipelines keep threatening water sources when we are having like widespread droughts 
here in the U.S., obviously, in these wildfires, but also, like, Hawaii and, like, all these other places, like, we're, like climate change is getting worse. We're going to need water. It's, it's only going to become more restricted. So you'd think that we would be trying to preserve those sources right now. Um, it's interesting that you say that because um, there is this trend on TikTok right now, and it's this dude going... What conspiracy theory do you 1,000% believe in? And of course, all these people are sharing their conspiracy theories, right? And we're not proponents of conspiracy theories, but sometimes there are some curiosity-striking questions. And this one girl goes, the reason why they keep threatening water sources on indigenous lands, the place where water sources are taken, as you mentioned, the, the places where the most care is taken of the environment, the most nurturing is happening to the environment. The reason why there is no, there, that there is such tremendous apathy toward the health of these water sources is if there are no more accessible water sources, then we have to depend on capitalism to deliver us water. Well, it's also, I mean, we're so long as it is, I might as well just bring this up. Um, What about our supply chain and infrastructure breakdown? How can you continue to be this capitalistic about water when there's no guarantee we're not going to emerge like Mad Max, right? Like you're depending on an external delivery source for water. Uh, all over the nation. And I've mentioned this before. Harvard owns water rights in California. How did Harvard's hedge fund invest in that? You know, so you have these institutions known for being bastions of the status quo. Mm. Um, Investing in water, you should be concerned. Right. These raise a lot of questions. And so I, why are you creating this dependency on water? Don't you know this ends poorly for you? If your part of your foundation is not critical thinking, of course you're not going to be thinking. Of course you're going to keep stealing, murdering, and exploiting until there's nothing left because you're not thinking of better solutions that sustain. Yes. And you're also looking at, you know, and you mentioned the droughts, so you have a, a shortage of clean potable water. You're looking at rainforests on fire and rising temperatures. So you're looking at an increase on salt water. (laughs) And then you're looking at poisoned water from all the manufacturing that's done and requires, you know, massive cleanup that's not being done or being enforced or even legislated against. So water rights. Yeah. So children, environment. That that's how the these are two giant legs of the attack on native people that we need to pay attention to. We need to support indigenous tribes when they are saying, you know, when they are protesting, like obviously we can't fly to Minnesota right now, uh, but like there are ways to support and there are websites set up. There are places we can go to that are being led by the people of these tribes, right? Follow the people who are rallying, Go straight to the source. Go to the people who care for this land. One of the things that people depend on, and I'll close the segment by saying this, is that the Sisyphean act of becoming aware of something and then needing to take action personally. And so you then start taking your actions. You then become demoralized and you stop. Instead of finding the people who have been taking the action following and supporting them let them lead you my right? knee there are so many things you can do 
You can support with money. You can support with signal boosting. You can support by showing up and let them tell you how to do it. You know what I mean? They've, they've already been in motion. Right. So if they're calling for a boycott, we boycott. Correct. If they're saying we need, you know, people to send us money so we can keep our protesters and our land protectors fed, clothed, and warmed, then you send money to keep the land protectors fed, clothed, and warm. Right? If this is something that is important to you, mm-hmm. then you're going to find a way for it to be, you know, impactful. And you don't want to keep recreating the wheel mm-hmm. when it comes to a lot of these things, right? So we will put in the show notes ways to get involved and become more informed in the um, fight to get children back to their communities. We will put links about the land back movement. We will put links about ICWA and the fight to steal Native children that's going on today. We will put links about the environmental activism of Indigenous and Native people. So we hope that you take advantage of the education and those items. And, you know, if you don't care, at least pass them along to your friend that you know screams about the environment right. all the time. You, you know? can talk to other, you can strike up a conversation with other, hey, have you heard about what's going on? You know what I mean? Like, that's, it's that simple. It's that simple. It makes you more interesting if you know what's going on. That too. Uh, in part two, we're going to talk about um, some really great news, some representation of indigenous cultures that are quite revolutionary for what we've seen in representation of indigenous cultures in America. So stay tuned. Until then, this has been Miranda, Pooja, and Anju with the Jilted Indian podcast. We came with love and courage and hope you go in peace and power. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Jilted Indian Podcast. The Jilted Indian Podcast is an independent production produced by the hosts Miranda, Anju, and Pooja. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jilted Indian Pod. For more information on episodes, including show notes, visit JiltedIndianPod.com. Indian Pod.com.